My name is Adam Young. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, today marks a special day and a new season for Christians around the world. Uh, Today is what we often call Palm Sunday and begins Holy Week or Passion Week uh, when we remember and and, uh, are preparing for the lead up to Easter. And uh, this final week, uh, Jesus enters into Jerusalem uh, as he prepares to go to the cross. And um, while oftentimes churches will focus in on that actual event of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, today we're actually going to focus on the crucifixion together and spend most of our time there. You know, our English word cross um, comes from the Latin crux. And in English, crux actually has a different meaning. It doesn't mean a cross, but rather means a decisive or important point uh, at issue. But as we discuss the cross today, we are literally, in both English and in Latin, talking about the crux of our faith. Um, Paul, in a letter to a church that he helped to pastor, um, writes this at the very beginning of his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, about the cross. He says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. And just a few verses later, he says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. What was true in the first century is still true in the 21st century. That the message or the word of the cross is foolishness to an unbelieving world. That our God would willingly die and choose a shameful and painful death is absurd. It's a stumbling block to those who don't believe. But believe what exactly? The crucifixion of Jesus is the single most highly attested historical fact of Jesus of Nazareth's life. When people say uninformed things like uh, Jesus never existed, or they may say something like if Jesus was so important, then why is it only the Bible that talks about him? Why aren't there other historical documents, other ancient historians who would talk about Jesus if he was so important? And anyone who would say something like that only reveals that they don't really know anything uh, about ancient history or literature. And so just some of the historical references outside of the Bible to the crucifixion of Jesus Um, We could start with what is probably the most well-known, Flavius Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian who wrote about Jesus being crucified under Pilate. Uh, Thallus was a first century historian who actually wrote that about some time in the spring of what we may date now as around 33 AD, in the middle of the day, the sky went dark. Now, he didn't associate it with anything in particular other than he wrote about it. And in the second century, um, Sextus Julius Africanus, who was a uh, historian in the second century, connected what Thallus wrote with what he knew and had heard about the crucifixion of Jesus. Tacitus, who was a first and second century Roman senator and historian, wrote about the crucifixion of Jesus under Pontius Pilate. 
Lucian of Samosata, who was a second century Syrian um, satirist and uh, rhetorician, uh, wrote about Jesus being crucified for his beliefs and his teachings. Marabin Serapian, uh, who was a first century Stoic philosopher, discusses Jesus's, quote, unjust death, along with those of Socrates and Pythagoras, and even the Babylonian Talmud, uh, which was a collection of rabbinic writings and teachings that spanned um, roughly the second through the sixth centuries, and specifically the book on the Sanhedrin, which was written roughly in the second or third century, even talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, you can disagree with why Jesus died. Uh, You can debate what might have led to his death and what motivations the Jews and the Romans in the first century might have had for killing Jesus. You can reject the notion that Jesus rose on the third day or any other Christian doctrine. But what is not reasonable or logical or historically honest is to deny the crucifixion of Jesus. But my goal today is not just to prevent anyone from denying the crucifixion, but to prevent anyone from ignoring it. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a journey um, through what we know about crucifixion in history and specifically leading into the first century. The role it played within the Roman Empire, what would take place at a crucifixion, And then specifically, we'll look at the events of Jesus' own crucifixion. And we'll start with the history. Where did crucifixion come from? Well, if you trace it backwards, then you really find yourself landing in the 9th century BC with the Assyrian Empire. Uh, They had a practice of impaling people on poles. Now, if you know anything from history about the Assyrians, that kind of practice isn't surprising at all. Sometimes they would impale people while they were still alive. Um, Sometimes they would impale people after they were dead to serve as a billboard um, for others. But what we see is we move on into the 6th century BC with the Persians are really the ones who invented the idea of nailing someone to a suspended device, usually a board or a plank. And we actually find the writings about the Persians doing this from a guy named Herodotus, which if you are familiar with that name, is often considered the father of modern history. And after the Persians started to develop this practice of nailing someone uh, to a suspended device, along comes another empire that will conquer the Persians. You may have heard of them. They're the Greeks. Now, actually, as we look at the historical records, the Greeks did not use crucifixion very often at all. They actually considered it too barbaric for their very sophisticated culture. There was actually really mainly one Greek who really was fond of using crucifixion, and that was a guy named Alexander the Great, who, interestingly enough, was not actually a Greek. He sort of adopted himself into the Greek empire because he loved them so much, but that's another discussion for another day. Alexander the Great loved to use crucifixion. He once crucified 2,000 prisoners of war at one time, scattering the crosses along the shoreline. After the Greeks come the Carthaginians, um, those who lived in Carthage. And the Carthaginians uh, really popularized crucifixion. 
it became their preferred method of execution. And for the Carthaginians, um, they preferred to use it against uh, more high visible individuals, people like uh, generals and admirals, uh, people who lost in battle, those who fleed from battle, um, or those who were disobedient to direct orders. They would often publicly crucify them um, in order to send a message. Um, they used crucifixion as a means of war. They used it as a means of stopping war. Uh, they used it as a means to wear down rebellious cities under siege um, and to break the will of conquered people. They really popularized the practice of crucifixion. And then on the scene of history, and starting in about the second century BC, we see another group of people known as the Romans step onto the stage. And the Romans used, unlike the Carthaginians, used crucifixion for the lower class. Now, contrary to popular belief, Roman citizens actually could and sometimes were crucified, though they usually reserved um, a different, different methods, more, you might say, quick and humane methods to execute their own citizens. It was primarily a punishment and execution for slaves and for the lower class. It was seen as the most severe punishment um, equal to feeding people to the wild beasts in the gladiatorial arenas. But crucifixion was far more popular because you could do it anywhere. Whereas in order to feed someone to the wild beasts in the arena, you had to have a city large enough to be able to support and to build their own arena. But crucifixions could be done anywhere at any time. And so if the Persians invented crucifixion, this idea of nailing someone to a suspended device, if the Carthaginians were the ones who popularized it, it was the Romans who perfected it. And there were certain purposes for why they would use crucifixion. We're going to go through these, and I'm going to go through them in reverse order. I'm going to begin with the least important, the one that they cared least about when they would choose to crucify someone. And the least motivation, motivating reason for crucifying someone was to kill them. The Romans had a lot of methods to kill someone. Crucifixion uh, was... The purpose of it on the very bottom of the list would be actually to kill someone. Higher up on the list would be to torture them. Crucifixions took a long time to actually lead to death. Sometimes it could happen in a day, but we have historical records of people who would hang on a cross one account of someone hanging for nine days before they died. This was much more about inflicting pain than it was death. The third most, or the, I guess uh, on the priority list, the second reason was for personal humiliation. Crucifixions took place in public, often next to the city entrances or on major highways, and you were always crucified naked. It was a public event, and it was designed to bring about the utmost humiliation for you and for your family and the most important reason that the Romans would use crucifixion is to send a warning to those who are still innocent that this is what happens when you cross Rome. 
This is what happens when you break the rules. This is what happens when you step out of line. This was, in every real sense, state-sponsored terror. The primary reason for using crucifixion was to send a message to everyone who saw and watched that you don't cross Rome. Rome had this favorite phrase, that they used uh, in Latin, it was Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. It's what they prided themselves on. But what was interesting is that they would use force and violence to keep and maintain the peace. What they wanted more than anything was peace in the empire. And if they didn't get it, they'd use crucifixion to enforce it. This was the purpose of crucifixion. I want to share with you some of the viewpoints that Romans themselves had when it comes to crucifixion, how they thought of it. Josephus in his Jewish wars in the first century called crucifixion a most miserable death. Origen in the second century referred to it as the utterly vile death on the cross. Cicero, a name you may be familiar with, referred to it as the most cruel and disgusting penalty. He called it a plague, and he said this, that the very mention of the word cross, or in Latin crux, should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body or their mouth, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. The cross was so disgusting that even the word crux and the Latin letter T, the tau, they were tainted. Lucian in the second century wrote, that the letter T was given its, quote, evil significance by the, quote, evil instrument shaped in the form of a towel which tyrants used to erect and hang men on. Vero, in the first century, a scholar and writer, wrote that the harshness of the word matches the pain brought on by the cross. In English, we have this word excruciating. It comes from the Latin excruciatus which literally in Latin means out of the cross. To describe what took place at a crucifixion, the Latins invented a new word. That's where we get our word excruciating from. And as we think and reflect on how Romans felt about crucifixion, Cicero, who I mentioned earlier, who called it that plague, He twice protested to the Roman emperor against the crucifixion of Roman citizens. And he actually accused um, a Roman leader, a guy named Varus, of doing it. But in the same speech in which he is arguing against crucifying Roman citizens, saying that it is so barbaric and disgusting, a proper Roman shouldn't even utter the word on their lips, he then goes on at the same time to accuse this same leader of having given a number of slaves suspected of conspiracy back to their master instead of crucifying them. And while the Stoic Seneca ascribes the abomination of crucifixion and other tortures to the worst of all passions, he takes it for granted that criminals have to be executed in this way. It was virtually unanimous among Romans that crucifixion was a horrible, disgusting deed but they saw it as a necessary evil. 
Crucifixion was meant to deter future crime. Even Quintilian, a first, first century rhetorician, saw it as a good thing to the point that crosses, in his view, ought to be set up on the busiest of roads as to send the loudest message. There were special places and for crosses and other instruments of torture in every large city in the Roman Empire as a deterrent to slaves and all lawbreakers, as a sign of the strict and merciless regime that was Rome. But it wasn't just theory. It wasn't that just people talked about it. The Romans did it. I'm sure many of you have uh, heard of Spartacus, a first century gladiator who led a revolt, uh, quite successful revolt at that actually. Rome didn't take him very seriously at first. Uh, until he started defeating some of their armies. And um, once they realized Spartacus and his revolt and rebellion were gaining steam and traction, they sent in the full force of the Roman army and conquered them. And uh, the Roman general, um, Crassus, uh, who led the final victorious battle over Spartacus, uh, crucified 6,000 prisoners. And he spread all 6,000 crosses across the Via Apia, which was the, one of the most uh, well-traveled, most important highways in the Roman Empire uh, that went between um, Capua and Rome. Nero, one of the emperors of Rome, renewed an old custom of executing through crucifixion all slaves in a household if the master was murdered. Instead of even trying to figure out who is guilty, everyone was crucified as a message to all other slaves of what happens uh, if something goes wrong. Uh, One Roman authority, Alexander Severus, set up crosses along the road between slave housing and the imperial palace to crucify any slave convicted of or even suspected of slander or bribery. And so that every day when the slaves woke up and began their travel to work, they had to walk by their friends and family members on the cross to be reminded of what happens when you step out of line. But it happened in Jesus' homeland as well. In the first century, there was a man, a king, uh, named Alexander Janius. Alexander Janius uh, was not only a king, he was also the self-appointed Jewish high priest. And this angered the Pharisees. They did not think that he should have the right to proclaim himself as high priest and serve both political and religious roles. And so they rebelled against him being the high priest. Interestingly enough, the Sadducees supported him. And uh, that's part of why the Sadducees and Pharisees in the New Testament never get along until they finally agreed on one thing, and that was to crucify Jesus. But to spite the Pharisees, one day in the temple... Um, Janius takes an offering that was supposed to be poured on the altar and he poured it on his own feet instead. It angered the Pharisees so much that they um, began uh, yelling at him. They got the crowds involved. They began throwing trash and food at Janius. And so in response, uh, he murdered 6,000 Jews, his own brothers and sisters. And then after that, after killing 6,000 of his own people, it uh, naturally started a civil war, a Jewish civil war, and it was one that Janius had the resources to win, and he did. And after his final victory, 
he publicly crucified 800 Pharisees at once to remind people of what happens when you push back, when you go against the grain, when you step out of line. Publius Quintius Verus was a Roman general under Caesar Augustus. And um, you've heard of Herod the Great. Um, He was responsible for trying to kill Jesus when he was born. Um, Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. Now, if you're adding up those numbers, that doesn't add up if he tried to kill Jesus, but he died in 4 BC. And that's because the person who originally calculated the years that we use now miscalculated them. So Jesus was not born in year one. He was born somewhere between 6 and 4 BC. Sounds weird, but uh, someone a long time ago made a miscalculation. But um, Herod the Great died in 4 BC. And Rome was going to step in and install their own leader, and the Jews didn't want that to happen. They wanted to be able to have their own say of, this is who we want to be our leader. And so they sent a delegation to Rome to protest, um, to demand their rights as they saw them. And Rome came back, not for negotiation, but for punishment. And once they finally quelled the rebellion and the uproar, they crucified 2,000 Jews all around Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus was alive when that happened. Now, we don't know how old he was exactly, so we don't know if he saw it with his own eyes, but he heard the stories. It was a scar on his people's history. It's likely that his family knew some of those individuals who had been crucified. It's likely that at some point in Jesus' life, someone looked at Jesus and pointed to a cross and says, this is what happens to Jews who decide to speak up against the status quo. The person who tries to be a voice for the voiceless, to promote justice, to call people to something bigger and higher than themselves, this is what Rome does to them. That's the state of crucifixion leading up to the first century. Now let's talk about the scene of a crucifixion. I want you to close your eyes with me for a minute. I want you to imagine a crucifixion. Bring up a picture in your mind. For some of you, you might view a few empty crosses atop a quiet, grassy hill with the sun gently setting behind the horizon, much like a picture you've seen or one hanging in your house. Maybe you see an outline of a lower T, case T, with a lifeless man hanging limply by nails in his hands. Perhaps this, quote, man even has a slight cut in his side. A crown of thorns on his head and perhaps even a drop or two of blood cascading from his pierced wrists and his pierced brow. The image that we have in our minds of a crucifixion is the sanitized version of what actually took place. Let me begin by describing the vertical beams. We call those stipes. You may not know this, but stipes were permanently fixed in the ground. Sometimes in dramatic recreations of the crucifixion, we see them standing up across a 
um, both the patabulum, which would be the horizontal bar, and the stipe, the vertical bar. But um, when you talk about the sheer weight of that, it's totally impractical. The stipes were permanently fixed in the ground always. And because the Romans preferred to execute people in public, they would be lined outside the city gates and along the major highways within the Roman Empire. Not that much different than telephone poles and light poles that line our roadways. Because they were permanently fixed and never removed, eventually they were stained black with blood. There was no pretty wood. They were stained. Let me ask you this. How long does it take for a fly to find your dog's mess in the backyard? In the summer, it doesn't take very long. And you don't have to teach a fly to do it. The sites of crucifixions were known to be infested with bugs. But not only bugs, they were infested with scavengers. Horace and Juvenal, uh, who were ancient Roman satirists, um, write about vultures uh, not only being at crucifixion sites to clean up afterwards, but even feasting on the corpses of people who are still hanging there. Now I want you to imagine for a minute the smell that would associate with one of these places. Most victims of crucifixion were never buried or only buried in part. It was a stereotyped but true expression that bodies of those on the cross were left to serve as food for wild beasts and birds of prey. The refusal of burial in the ancient world was one of the worst forms of dishonor. Occasionally, they would be buried, but only in a mass grave. But like I said, sometimes we know that bodies would hang there for weeks, Eventually, parts would just start falling off and start piling up at the bottom, and they would just be left there. Now, I want you to imagine the sounds. I want, to ima- I want you to imagine that, that tomorrow you've got to travel to the big city. You've got some work to do, some people to see. But knowing that people will be in the process of being crucified on the way, And you'll hear it before you even see it. The screams of people in utter agony. Now I want you to imagine the crowds. Because historically we know there were crowds who had come to these places. What type of person shows up to a place like this? What type of person would use this as their weekend form of entertainment. We know that crowds would gather to mock those who were being crucified. They would throw things at them, stones and food and garbage. Who shows up to a place like this? The kinds of people who are there to watch as though it were a sporting event. And now imagine that you have to take your children on a journey. That you've got to head to the city. That you've got to travel down one of the Roman highways knowing what will be taking place. 
trying to shield your children from the sounds and the sights and the smells. Have you ever been into a bad part of town at night and worried about what characters may be there? Imagine traveling with your family by these places, knowing the kind of people who had gathered for their own joy. This is the scene of a crucifixion in the first century. By nature, it wasn't spiritual. It wasn't romantic. It was disgusting. It was so disgusting that Cicero said a real Roman shouldn't even utter the word. A Roman is too fit for even speaking of such things. That's the scene of a crucifixion. Let's talk about the events of Jesus' crucifixion. And it begins on Palm Sunday. The promises made thousands of years before were finally coming to be fulfilled. Jesus was entering into the capital city. A king entering into his capital city. The crowds knew that something special was taking place. So much so that they began laying palm branches on the ground. So that even the donkey Jesus rode wouldn't touch the ground, celebrating the arrival of their new king and what they hoped would be a king who would overthrow the Romans, who had conquered them, who, who had possessed their land, who had taxed them, and who had punished and tortured their people for so long. Here comes this Messiah, this king, who's going to set us free. When the crowds realized that Jesus came to be a different kind of king over a different kind of kingdom, that his, motion, that his uh, mission and motive was not to overthrow the Romans, we'll see the crowd quickly change. As we lead into Thursday night of that final week, Jesus sits down to share a final supper with his disciples. The Jewish Passover celebration, remembering God's faithfulness when he led his people into freedom, out of slavery, when he delivered his people. And it was at that meal that Jesus redefined how we understand it to begin to share with his disciples that it was him who was going to bring freedom for his people. Jesus had been telling his disciples for a while, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to die. But they just thought he was being metaphorical. Jesus telling one of those parables or those strange stories again that we don't quite understand. They didn't know that he literally meant he was coming to Jerusalem to die. After they shared that final supper, they sang a hymn and they left in the night. They just went outside the city gates to a place called the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives was this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus asked his disciples, will you pray with me and for me over what's to come? The disciples didn't get it, so they go to sleep. But Jesus drops to his knees in agony. And then Luke gives us this interesting detail. He's the only one who mentions it. But we can imagine why, because what we know about Luke is Luke was a physician in the first century, and he begins to tell us of a condition that Jesus started to experience, and it's a medical condition that we now today call hematidrosis. It's when the pressure and the stress in your body begins to build to such a degree 
that the capillaries in your skin literally begin to burst under the weight and the stress and the pressure. And that blood begins to mix in with your sweat glands. Luke begins to tell us that in the garden, Jesus begins to sweat drops of blood. It's an actual medical condition. Under the weight of knowing what was coming. Because Jesus had seen it before. He had heard it before. He had smelled it before. He knew what awaited him. It was in that garden that he cries out to his father. If this if this cup can pass from me. Father, if there is any other way we can accomplish this, if there's any other solution, let it pass. And he says, but not my will, your will be done. It was about that time that one of Jesus' closest friends shows up to betray him and hand him over to the authorities. Jesus is arrested. And at that moment, Peter does something that we would expect Peter to do. He pulls out a sword to defend Jesus. Jesus said, put it away. Don't you know that I could call a legion of angels to my defense if I wanted that? And so they take Jesus after they've arrested him. And over the next coming hours throughout the night, Jesus will endure five trials. Because Jewish law doesn't allow you to do a trial at night while the sun is down, it's not a formal trial. And so the Jews begin to plot their plan. They start gathering testimony of what accusations they're going to bring Jesus when they take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, in the morning. They start working to get their testimonies and their stories all straightened out, but eventually they run out of time. So they have to find something to entertain themselves, something to pass the time. So at some point they blindfold Jesus, and with their big insignia religious rings on their hands, they begin punching him and Mocking him. Jesus, guess who punched you that time? As a part of this process, they'll form a crown of thorns as a mockery of him being a king, and they'll place it on his head. They'll put a purple robe on him to make fun of him. They'll spit at him. They'll pull chunks of his beard out of his face. Eventually, he'll be sent for the crucifixion. After a series of five trials, Pilate didn't want, to, didn't want to convict Jesus. He tried everything in his power to declare Jesus innocent and to acquit him. But the problem is that Pilate had already run into pr- trouble with Rome prior to this. You see, what mattered to Rome more than anything was that Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And Pilate had allowed a few situations to get out of control. There were some revolts that took place under his watch, and he knew if another revolt took place, 
it would not only cost him his job, but probably his life. He tried to find a way to not convict Jesus, but the crowds were incessant. Crucify him, they begged and shouted. Pilate, while begging Jesus to just give him something that he could acquit him on, Finally, when Jesus just refused to say anything, looked at Jesus and said, do you not know I have the power to set you free and I have the power to kill you? Jesus looked at Pilate and said, you don't have any authority that wasn't given to you. And what we know from Ephesians 1 is that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. So what Jesus essentially looked at Pilate and said is you don't have any authority to do anything except for that which I gave you. So then John gives us this little interesting detail. He says that Jesus was sent to be flogged or scourged. That's all he says about it. But there was a lot to it. To be scourged or flogged was to be whipped with what we now call a cat of nine tails. It was a short whip with nine leather strands, and on the end of those leather strands were often tied rocks and shards of glass and sharp pottery. They would even tie hooks into the end of those. An individual would be tied with their hands above their head, and there would be a Roman soldier, each with their own whip, who would stand on either side, and they would alternate taking turns. We don't actually know how bad the, crucif- uh, the, the flogging or the scourging of Jesus was. What we know from history is that they would give usually 39 lashes because they believed 40 would kill a man. But we know people would die from scourging. We have historical accounts of some of those hooks ripping rib bones out of someone's chest cavity. Oftentimes your internal organs would be exposed by the end of it the blood loss would be catastrophic and usually at that point would be fatal. We don't know how bad the scourging was, but it must have been bad. Because the Roman practice was after that, you carried your own crossbar, your own paddleboom to the site of your execution. The crossbar would have weighed between 100 and 150 pounds and Jesus was too weak at that point to carry it. As a combination of staying up all night and enduring those trials and his scourging, at some point Jesus falls to the ground because he can't carry the weight anymore. I read in a medical journal that evaluated what would have happened carrying that kind of crossbeam on your shoulders if you were to fall down. Jesus didn't have his hands to catch himself, so he would have taken the full brunt of the weight on his chest when he fell. This medical journal likened that force to being in a head-on collision between 40 and 50 miles an hour, not wearing your seatbelt and not having airbags. The collision of your chest hitting the steering wheel would be equivalent to what Jesus experienced when he fell that day. At that part, at that point, his, there are contusions on his heart. They have to get someone else to carry his crossbar to the side of his execution. And then once there, Jesus, raised by a carpenter. 
Jesus, who didn't start his public ministry until he was 30, which means he probably spent the majority of his adult life as a carpenter himself. Jesus, who had spent most of his life nailing nails into wood, had his own hands spread out and nailed into the crossbar. At that point, they would have raised it and attached it to the stipe, that permanent vertical bar. Even though in most of our images, Jesus is hanging up high, he wouldn't have been. He'd barely been off the ground, mostly because it just wasn't practical to lift someone that high. We also know he was close to the ground because at some point, um, one of the soldiers felt so sorry for Jesus that he offered Jesus a drink on a sponge, and it says that he used a hyssop branch. And a hyssop plant is just a small bush. He'd have barely been off the ground. Now, for most individuals, they died from crucifixion through asphyxiation, meaning they couldn't breathe. When your hands were nailed to the crossbar and your feet were nailed to that vertical bar, um, the problem isn't that you can't inhale, it's actually that you can't exhale. And the only way to exhale is to pull yourself up by the nails in your wrist and to push up by the nail in your feet so that you can exhale. It's the only way to breathe. Which means every time Jesus spoke from the cross, he had to pull himself up to do it. When he spoke hope to the criminal who is next to him, he had to pull himself up by those nails in his wrist. When he looked at his mother who was there watching. And he told the disciple, John, hey, you're going to take care of my mom from now on. He had to pull himself up to do it. I don't believe that Jesus died from asphyxiation for two reasons. One, he didn't hang there long enough. But two, the Bible says that one point Jesus pulls himself up and cries out in a loud voice Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani in that moment he proclaimed to tell us that it is finished and when he knew his time was coming he prayed father into your hands, I commit my spirit. After they suspected Jesus of being dead, they took a spear and they pierced his side. And what flew out was water mixed with blood. What's likely happening is that Jesus from the cross from the traumatic blood loss and the contusions on his heart can feel his heart sacs rupturing. He knows it's the end. So from the cross, Jesus, both literally and figuratively, dies of a broken heart. And we call this what? We call this our good news. 
That's what the word gospel means. Our good news. It's not good because of his death. It's good because of why he died. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. From the cross, Jesus cried out, Tetelestai. It means, it is finished. He did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished what he came to do, what he came to accomplish, had been accomplished. Jesus was born to die. He was born to die for you and for me. So that in him, through his death, we might have life. That he took the worst the Romans could give to him to pay the penalty for our sins, for our cosmic treason, for our rebellion against the creator of this universe. He did it for you. And he did it for me. And from the cross accomplished what he had set out to accomplish. Let's pray. Lord, it's a heavy thing to reflect upon your death for us. That you willingly chose this painful and shameful way of death for us. So that we might be set free so that in you we may have life. Help us to respond appropriately to you this morning. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a minute. Jesus told Peter in that garden that he didn't need Peter to protect him. He could have called angels down. He told Pilate that Pilate didn't have any authority to do anything other than that which Jesus himself had given to him 
Jesus said in the book of John, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus chose death for you. And this is a moment for us to respond to that. We're going to have the opportunity to sing about the power of the cross. The power that it has to change and transform. We invite you to the table to remember the sacrifice he made for you. At that final supper before he was arrested, in Luke 22, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And we come to the table with the broken bread and the cup to remember his sacrifice for us. Because it was his joy to go to the cross for us. Because of how much he loves you. And if you have never given your heart and your life to him, this is the moment to do it. There's no magical words you have to repeat, but right where you are, right now between you and him, is the opportunity for you to give him your heart and your life, to thank him for dying for you. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave because death couldn't hold him down. Lord, thank you. May the way we respond be honoring and appropriate to you in this moment.